Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, calling us to live to a higher standard each day. Not satisfied with a shallow existence? As this podcast series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who are influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today we continue the story of her time in Ecuador. It's an extended series. The story includes eventually the death of five missionaries seeking to reach the Alka or Waldani people. Well, today we continue that series with Gateway to Joy Program 83, Point A to Point B. And later in the podcast, our second Gateway to Joy program is called Birth and Death in the Jungle. First, we hear from Johnny Erickson Tata. She's going to talk about Jim Elliott's writing. He had a way of being, shall we say, poetic. For centuries, ever since the year 195, I looked it up, we've heard that saying that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And certainly the blood of Jim Elliott and his missionary friends overflowed the inkwells into which Elizabeth dipped her pen and wrote such wise, wise words. Words that not only inspired generations of courageous missionaries who carried and planted the banner of Christ in jungles and deserts and mountain villages and cities great and small, but words that inspired us, blessed us, invigorated us. Especially when hardships deep, painful hardships arise. Johnny Erickson Tata. Later in this podcast, we'll have a Gateway to Joy program called Birth and Death in the Jungle. Here's Elizabeth Elliot. Gateway to Joy program 83 and point A to point B. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says and underneath are the everlasting arms. We've been talking about the two young men, Jim Elliott and Pete Fleming, who were en route to their life's goal, missionary work in Ecuador. Jim was from Portland, Oregon. He believed that God was calling him into linguistic work in the jungles, and he had been praying for some time for a companion so that he could go two by two as Jesus had sent out the disciples back in New Testament days. And the answer to his prayer was Pete Fleming, a young man with a master's degree in literature from the University of Washington. And so the two men sailed from California in February of 1952. After 18 days at sea, they arrived in Guayaquil, the port city of Ecuador, and about halfway up the Guayas River, Pete wrote, I finally comprehended that this This was Ecuador. I felt a tingling sensation for the first time. Jim and I sang quietly, Faith of Our Fathers, as the boat pulled into the harbor. Faith of Our Fathers, holy faith. We will be true to thee till death. We've been mentioning the fact that God has a story which he's writing in the lives of every one of us. He's the author. We are the characters in the story. We don't know what the ending is going to be. We have no idea what's going to happen in the next chapter. 
And many times, God's story has surprise endings and many excitements. But it also has a good many routine, ordinary days. If we were to write the story of our lives, including every day, a good many of those days would be pretty boring. Have you ever looked back over any of your old diaries and find out that it's very boring after all? Well, we go from point A to point B to point C to point D, and nothing at all seems to be happening. But the things which were going on in Jim and Pete's lives at this point were very exciting. They had just arrived in Guayaquil, and here they were looking at all these strange sights. The tide was coming in, the masses of water hyacinths were riding swiftly upriver, the Guayas River. There was a huge white fruit ship standing at anchor, and beside it the barges and long, slim dugout canoes of the banana vendors. On the wharf stood stacks and stacks of bananas to be exported to the United States and other places. A ferry was disgorging, sweating, shouting multitudes with their straw suitcases and cloth bundles and chickens and baskets and pineapples. And Jim and Pete stopped to watch the faces. Businessmen dressed in crisp white suits and Panama hats were coming out of buildings for the two-hour lunch break. And fancy cars were nudging donkeys for the right-of-way in the streets. It was a land of contrasts. They had to spend several days in a third-class hotel where there were heat, mosquitoes, and a lot of noise. The bray of a burro, or a donkey, woke them up the first morning, and they had to go to the customs office several times in order to clear their baggage, which had come up the river from the freighter by barge. Their goal was to go to Quito, the capital city of Ecuador, where they were going to start learning Spanish. And so they were very impatient as they waited in Guayaquil for the clearing of their baggage. They took a plane to Quito, traveling up over the western cordillera of the Andes, crossing a 13,000-foot pass, and landing in the capital. Quito is 9,300 feet above sea level, and to the west rises the volcanic mountain Pichincha. To the east are even higher snow caps. Here was a new opportunity to live to the hilt. Jim had written in his diary, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. I too had taken a boat to Ecuador subsequent to Jim and Pete's arrival, but I remember very well the agony of waiting for almost 10 days for my baggage and then the tremendous relief of getting out of the heat and steam of Guayaquil, the port city, up into the high, clear atmosphere of Quito, a beautiful city, a colonial city with cobblestone streets, beautiful white stucco buildings with geraniums in window boxes, and an old-world atmosphere. There were also the smells and the slums and the rotting banana peels in certain sections. But generally speaking, it is a beautiful city. And Jim and Pete threw heart and soul into the learning of Spanish. For the first month or so, they lived with Dr. Tidmarsh and his wife, which was not an ideal situation for learning Spanish. 
But when they learned that it was possible to find a room in a non-English-speaking house, that's what they did. They moved in with a family called Cevallos, and no one in that household spoke English. So they were learning Spanish by what's called the immersion method. It was amazing the speed with which they learned the language. Jim had done a very wise thing before he went to Ecuador. He had spent two summers working with a missionary family in Mexico. This was back in the days before anybody had thought of summer programs for kids. Jim thought it up all by himself and had hitchhiked to Mexico and learned quite a bit of Spanish in the six weeks that he was there for each of two years. But Pete did not know any Spanish. They signed up with a Spanish-speaking senorita who began formal lessons. And it was not very long after their arrival that I also arrived in Ecuador as a brand new missionary with another woman from Texas, Dorothy Jones and I, had a house right across the street where we rented a room and ate our meals and learned Spanish with the family name Arias. Then when the time came that the men felt they had learned sufficient Spanish to get along, they moved down into what is called the Oriente, the eastern jungle, taking a bus from the city of Quito. It's called a bus. It's not exactly what you would call a comfortable one. It doesn't look anything like the Greyhound or Trailways buses of this country. The seats were made of boards about 10 inches deep, and the back of the seat was a board about 10 inches high. There were chickens and pineapples and all sorts of things in the bus with them, and there were delays. One of the things that we learned about bus trips in Ecuador was that they either stopped for nothing or they wouldn't stop for anything. Sometimes the driver would turn off the ignition in order to save gas as the bus careened down the, let's see, how many foot drop was it? About 10,000 feet. After you went up to the high pass of 12,000 feet, then you had to drop down into the eastern jungle, and that was a rather hair-raising trip. Ambato was the city called the gateway to the Oriente, where they changed buses and then dropped down from there very precipitously through the Pastasa Gorge and to the little town of Shelmera, which was the gateway to the jungle and the place where the Missionary Aviation Fellowship had their base. There were hairpin turns on the road. There were orchids hanging over the road. Many things which caught their attention, which they put down in their journals and in their letters. Jim and Pete spent the night in Nate and Marge Saint's house, the Missionary Aviation Base, the house which Nate Saint had built, and he flew them the following day into a station called Pano, which was manned by the Christian Missionary Alliance, and from Pano they walked over the trail to Shandia. Shandia was their life's goal, the place where Dr. Tidmarsh had been working, and he met them in Pano and led them over the trail, which was very muddy, into Shandia. Jim wrote about the mud up to their knees at times, the roots, the buttress-shaped roots of tremendously tall jungle trees, and the umbrella of trees which made the jungle rather a dark place. He noticed colored fungus, flowers, 
the delicious smells of flowers high up in the trees that they couldn't even see. And just as the moon rose, they broke into the station of Shandia. There was a little thatched house there, a supper of rice soup prepared by Dr. Tidmarsh's Indian helper, plantain, manioc, rice, and coffee. The only light was a kerosene lamp, and Jim sat down by the kerosene lamp that night and wrote a description of that trip in his journal. God has a story which he's writing in the lives of every one of us. And many times God's story has surprise endings and many excitements, but it also has a good many routine, ordinary days. Gateway to Joy, Program 83, and Point A to Point B. Our second Gateway to Joy program will deal with suffering. Suffering is something that Johnny Erickson Tata has been dealing with for many years, as she's been confined to a wheelchair. Let's hear what Elizabeth taught her about suffering, about heaven, and even about hymns. I first met Elizabeth in 1976. We were speaking together in a conference, at a conference in Canada. Um, she and I often spoke at many women's conferences together. I was only 26 years old back then, and I had less than a decade of quadriplegia under my belt, and I could not believe that I had the chance to share the platform with this, this saint of the age. Back in high school, like most of us, I had been inspired by her book, Through Gates of Splendor, but I had no idea back then, back before the diving accident in which I would become paralyzed, I had no idea that soon and very soon after my graduation, I would enter that dark valley that Elizabeth so frequently wrote about. <coughs> One evening at this Canadian conference, um, after we spoke, Elizabeth came back to my hotel room and my sister helped me out of the wheelchair, got me undressed, propped me up with pillows. And we discovered during the conference that we both loved hymns. And so with me there in bed and her sitting on the other mattress, we sang, Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see, and in thy presence rest. Also, we spoke together, opening up our hearts, sharing how utterly, utterly faithful God had been, God had remained to both of us through so much affliction, and we agreed back then, that no one participates in God's joy without first tasting his son's afflictions. That night before she left the hotel room, she paused by the door, looked back and smiled, and said, just remember, Johnny, that suffering is not for nothing. It was so Elizabethan. And back then, I thought I totally understood what she meant. I mean, after all, nine years of quadriplegia had so far stripped away a lot of pride, exposed a lot of sin, 
It had refined my faith, it had strengthened my character, it had fostered empathy for others who hurt, it had given me such a deeper love of God's Word and prayer. In fact, two years later, I put all of these things down in a book that I wrote with my friend Steve Estes. We called it A Step Further. It was a summary of the many things that God had been teaching me those years in my wheelchair. And I was so delighted with my tidy, orderly list of the 35 good biblical reasons as to why God allows suffering and what you can learn from it. So, I asked Elizabeth if she would please read the manuscript to offer an endorsement, which she did, it was very generous. But in her cover letter, she confessed that although she found the book extremely satisfactory, it was, in her words, a bit technical. Her comment utterly crushed me. But after a few more years, or so of quadriplegia and the encroachment of chronic pain, I began to see, I began to realize that there is more, much more to suffering than learning the reasons why God allows it and how you can benefit from it. That's what Elizabeth meant by her comment. She knew that true maturity, true joy, true contentment has less to do with a a mechanistic assessment of God's plan and purposes for your life, and more to do with being pushed into and at times shoved and pressed up against the breast of Jesus Christ until your heart begins beating in rhythm with His. Not a tidy, not an orderly list, but something very messy, an earnest grappling, an earnest wrestling with the angel of the Lord until he touches us in heart and hip. When you are decimated by affliction, when you are down for the count, you learn Elizabeth's doctrine that the Bible's answers are never ever to be separated from the tender, sweet, holy, precious God of the Bible. I learned, we all learned that rich and powerful truth from her, and for me, after decades of paralysis and the encroachment of pain and cancer, it has made all the difference. And even as Elizabeth grew older, even when she aged, just knowing that she was with us, just knowing that she was still part of the church militant, still here, still on planet Earth, was our best deterrent against complaining. She was the saltiest of the salt of the Earth, <laughs> preserving the body of Christ from whining and whinging. She never, ever, ever meant to run roughshod over our feelings. No, not at all. She just wanted us to appreciate how high the cosmic stakes really are. That none of us, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, none of us has, has suffered to the point of shedding blood. So, cheer up, you saints of God. You've nothing to worry about. Get over it. 
Life is supposed to be difficult. God wired it that way, and Jesus is ecstasy beyond compare, and it is worth any amount of suffering to be his friend. I totally ate that up. That kind of stuff, I thrived on it. I was totally invigorated by her, as John Piper put it, her no-nonsense, get up in the morning, pull up your britches and go out and die, way of looking at life. I loved it. She made me, she made all of us understand that every day we are on a fierce battlefield upon which the mightiest forces of the universe converge in warfare. And all of us happily rose to that challenge. We were invigorated by her example, totally energized by her exalted vision for the church. Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining. Her life, her example, her writings, how can I put this? They are food and drink to those of us that God places on altars of affliction. Thank God that I had Elizabeth and her example to show me how to say, it is well when I felt as though my soul was being singed by fire. But I also learned from her that the altar of affliction is the safest, most secure, most precious place to be because it is a place where dross is consumed and holiness is honed. Elizabeth embodied that. Thank you, Johnny Erickson Tana, from the memorial service at Wheaton College in 2015. And now, birth and death in the jungle. We've been talking about Pete Fleming and Jim Elliott, two brand new missionaries in Ecuador back in the 1950s. They were working in a little station called Shandia in the eastern jungle on the headwaters of the Amazon River. Their job there was to learn Quechua. Quechua is the modern version of the Inca language called Quechua in Ecuador, Quechua in Peru. And it was their job to learn what is an unwritten language. That's a tough job. There are no teachers. There are no textbooks. But they did have the assistance of Dr. Tidmarsh, an older missionary who did speak Quechua and was going to spend the first few weeks of their time there helping them get started on this language. The Quechua Indians are very peaceful people, caught between two cultures. They've had contact with white men for probably several centuries. Most of them were nominally Catholics, but they knew very little about Christianity or the Bible. They liked blue jeans and t-shirts. They were not painted. They didn't wear any interesting costumes that tourists from the United States found exciting for their photographs, and it was their great desire to learn to read, to learn Spanish, and possibly get a job outside of the jungle, and one of the things that they worked for was usually a pair of shoes. They were constantly laughing at the ways in which the white men did things. These two guys, they walked around all the time with notebooks and pens, and everything the Indians said, the men immediately tried to imitate repeat back to them, and get down phonetically on paper. 
In fact, the Indians said to them, do you ever do anything except write on paper? You smell like paper. They got tired of that. I was by this time in the western jungle of Ecuador, way over on the other side of the Andes, working with a different tribe called the Colorados. And Jim kept in touch with me as frequently as jungle mail service would permit. Soon after he got to Shandia, he wrote to me this letter. Days begin at 6 o'clock with the swishing of the gas stove on which Dr. Tidmarsh heats his shaving water. The box we use for a washstand sits on the corner of the front porch, and the drain is over the wall where you aim the basin at a ditch which runs right around the house. Breakfast, usually consisting of a bowl or two of banana soup or ground corn, a fresh banana and a cup of coffee, has so far been interrupted at 7.15 each morning to make radio contact with the other mission stations of the region. At mealtime, we speak only Spanish. Breakfast is followed by a reading of Daniel in Spanish and morning prayer. So far, my mornings have been consumed in watching the doctor do medical work, studying, or making some gadget to bring things to a little better state for comfort, and interspersed with visits to the airstrip to see if the men are working. Today, as a herd of wild pigs upriver sent most of them scurrying to the hunt, there were only a dozen or so working. They had arrived at that part of the strip which was planted in patches of plantain, which is a tropical fruit, a cooking cousin of the banana, and they were loath to cut them down. I helped them push over the trees to get them started. It's like destroying food to them, and it hurt me a little too, but there are other plantains and no other airstrips. Our room is exceedingly pleasant. A huge window looks out on a beautiful view. The door is monk's cloth curtain between our room and the living room. Two throw rugs and two aluminum chairs make the place look very civilized, and the Indian Venancio sweeps it daily to clean out the mud and the dead cockroaches. Venancio was a character. He was a typical Quechua, Dr. Tidmarsh's right-hand man, He dressed in ordinary pants and shirt, having years ago left the costume called the kushma, which was a sort of tunic. They travel on jungle trails, sometimes in knee-deep mud, and so shoes were really an absurdity, but occasionally Venancio put on his fancy, stiff pair of very uncomfortable shoes as a sign of prestige. A safety pin adorned a conspicuous spot on the front of his unironed shirt. He liked it not only as an adornment, but it was handy for removing chonta palm thorns from his feet. As he traveled the trail, he carried a well-worn machete, which he swung aimlessly at the trees as he walked by. If he came to a steep or slippery bank, he could cut steps into the bank with his machete. If a vine hung in his way, one swipe would remove it. His wife, Susanna, trudged along behind him, carrying her baby in a cloth on her side and a great basket containing a cooking pot, chickens, blanket, and plantains. This basket was strapped with a jungle rope, a strip of bark, or a long fibrous leaf, which was passed around the basket and up over Susanna's forehead. She, too, carried her machete with which to dig and peel the manioc, which is their main diet. Sometimes she used it to trim her fingernails, or to discourage the weeds around the front door. The machete, as you see, was a most valued implement. Sometimes it was the only implement they had.
They used it for hoe, shovel, axe, knife, scissors, and nail file. Jim and Pete soon learned that the machete was indispensable in the jungle and wondered how they had ever done without it in the States. Venancio's work consisted mostly of weaving baskets of all sizes, tiny baskets for eggs, big baskets for carrying maybe 70 pounds of things on their backs. He wove fish traps. He made nets for catching fish. And occasionally, for fun, he made a monkey skin drum. While he sat and wove his baskets and fish nets, his wife Susanna cleared the land, chopped down trees, scrubbed clothes on the rocks, carried water, carried firewood, and generally did all of the hard work. One night, as Jim and Pete were sitting in their house, a man arrived saying, my sister-in-law is dying. They didn't know at that point that dying in Quechua is simply the word meaning that she's not very well. It could mean that she had a toothache or headache, or it could mean that she really was dying. But taking the man literally, they followed him down the dark Talak River and to his thatched house where there were fires glowing. The place was very smoky. A man was playing a violin, and they saw in one corner that there was a woman lying on a bamboo board. Pete wrote his description of that evening in his diary. The woman was partly shielded from public view by two loosely hung blankets and was attended by the midwife. Gradually all became dark, the smoldering fires died to embers, and the families went to their boards for the night, the little children with their parents, older boys together in one corner, girls in another. They gave Tidmarsh and me a bed, and we lay down as there was no sign of the baby's arrival, labor pains still seven minutes apart. As the bamboo had none of the usually associated attributes of flexibility, which it has in the minds of many, and as our shoes and pants were still wet from walking in the river, we soon chilled and later rose and sat on a small log seat around a smoky fire which refused to stay alight. In company of two mangy skeleton rib dogs, we sat listening to the whine of the crickets, the strange goose-like honking of the tree toads, the occasional waking cry of a child, the creaking of the bamboo as someone rolled over, and the periodic moans of the woman which rose shrilly to a short scream. Gradually, as the pains increased and intensified, the girl rose to her knees and reached for the vine rope which hung from the ceiling above, intertwining her hands in the rope and lifting her body when the pains came. For me, those small brown hands held high over the head and the arms lined with taut tendons communicated something of the simplicity and yet binding custom of their means of giving birth. After she had passed the water, the pains waned, and finally the baby began to descend. The midwife gave a word. Everybody woke up and moved sleepily to the corner and stood peering over the curtains. Privacy is a word and concept unknown. They prepared a drink for the mother by scraping the claw of a sloth and mixing the powder with water. I think this is supposed to hasten the arrival of a baby. Venancio, our cook, then stepped inside grasped the girl by the shoulders and began shaking her violently, which he continued to do until the baby arrived, dropping half onto the banana leaves, half onto the earthen floor, a tiny, white, frail thing, 
attached to an intestine-like cord, motionless in the flickering kerosene light. Wrapping it in an old dirty cloth and tying it with a woman's embroidered belt, the old midwife handed the baby to a small naked child who tottered across the floor with it. A woman took it, laid it on a bamboo plank where it was apparently forgotten. Meanwhile, the mother continued in her martyr-like position, wincing and writhing under the continuing contractions. Tidmarsh committed the baby to the Lord in prayer. Later on, Jim wrote of another midnight journey down a muddy trail in the dark where a witch doctor was going through his incantations over a child. Jim wrote, no struggle, just quit breathing. Made our third small coffin this morning. That's called Birth and Death in the Jungle. It was originally the 84th Gateway to Joy program. Well, it's been so good to have you with us on this podcast today. As Elizabeth Elliot reminded us, simply doing the next thing in front of us can make all the difference as we face the challenges of the darkest day. Until we meet again here on the Elizabeth Elliot Gateway to Joy podcast, may God remind you daily that you are loved with an everlasting love and underneath are the everlasting arms.